Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about the movie High Noon, which is a 1952 western that stars Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. It also features many other actors that we have seen in other movies. It was produced by Stanley Kramer from a screenplay that was written by Carl Foreman, and it was directed by Fred Zinneman. The plot, which, spoiler alert, um, it is depicted in real time, um, so it's 120 minutes, or an hour and 24 minutes long, and that's how much time passes in this movie, centers around a town called Hadleysville, which is in the New Mexico Territory, the longtime marshal, Will Kane, who's played by Gary Cooper, weds a Quaker named Amy in the morning, hands in his gun and his badge, and heads out of town, just as the town gets the word that an outlaw named Frank Miller is on his way back on the noon train to uh, avenge what he believes to be um, a wrong done him by Kane, who sent him to jail in the first place. The marshal is torn between his sense of duty to a town he's protected for a long time and his love for this new bride who just wants him to leave. Then he ultimately has to face a gang of killers alone. Or does he? (laughs) Is he really alone? (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, so that is High Noon in 10 seconds or less. Do you have any trivia for us? Yes, I do. Um, A lot of interesting... I didn't look up the trivia until after I'd watched the movie. The film was intended as an allegory for the uh, McCarthyist House on American Activities Committee and the way Hollywood failed to protect its own people from being Uh, blacklisted. uh Uh-huh. Which makes total sense after having seen it, but I did not know. And Carl Foreman, the screen, I was just reading about this before I got on the phone with you. Carl Foreman, the guy who wrote the screenplay, actually was called in front of the House on Un-American Activities Committee and questioned. I don't know if this is in your, um, your trivia, but Gary Cooper did two things. He, like, offered to go and testify on Foreman's behalf, and he also, Zinneman was going to cut Foreman out of the credits, and or I can't remember actually it was Zinneman and or Kramer, the producer. If it was the director or the producer, and Gary Cooper was like, I'm like if you if you cut Carl Foreman out, you gotta cut me out too. Which is crazy. Oh, go Gary Cooper. I think yeah. I did read something about this and that by the time the movie was in theaters that the screenwriter had actually fled the country. Mm-hmm. So this is art imitating life. That's right. And life is well, and it, art. And this was actually a rare... Gary Cooper actually, like, campaigned really hard against uh, Roosevelt's... Or for Roosevelt's um, uh, opponent in um, one of Roosevelt's elections. So he wasn't, like... he Like, it was sort of out of character that he was like, Oh, yes, I will support the communists. <laughs> he was, like, mostly a conservative Republican. Also along these lines... Many of you may know that John Wayne was a big supporter of the anti-communist organization in the film industry, uh-huh. and he hated this movie because he knew that it was an allegory for blacklisting, and 
even like decades later, he was still in interviews talking about how disrespectful this movie was. So um, that made me, I mean, not that I was a, ever a big John Wayne fan, but I was like, yeah, you're not my Western lead, John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take Gary Cooper over you any day. Any day. This film was a first in that it introduced the idea of a theme song that was marketed separately from the movie mm. and used as a score throughout. And the song was by Tex Ritter, Do Not Forsake Me, which was written from the point of view of Gary Cooper's character singing to his wife. Mm-hmm. And I thought that song was really catchy and I still have it in my head. Yeah, it's stuck in my head. There was some question as to the casting with Gary Cooper opposite Grace Kelly because Cooper was 50 and Kelly was only 21 and people wondered if it was too big of an age difference, but at the time it wasn't that unusual for a gap that wide. Sure. Um, And they actually in real life had an affair during the filming of this movie. I One of my first comments that I wrote down was, he looks like he could be her father, which... Mm-hmm legit with that age difference but i guess there was chem i i didn't think there was a lot of chemistry between them but there must I mean, have been in real life he 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 made a lot of movies what i gained from looking at his bio is that he made a lot of movies and he had a lot of affairs with many co-stars so i don't think the age difference made a difference to him so this movie was nominated for best picture and it lost to the greatest show on earth which was a cecil b demille film Um, And it's considered one of the biggest upsets in the history of the Oscars. And a lot of people say that they think that that was just to appease Senator McCarthy um, Uh, because DeMille was a McCarthy supporter and this film was clearly anti-McCarthy. Right. So that's that's what I pulled out for trivia. Do you want to tell (laughs) us a little bit more about Gary Cooper? Sure. So I will say that Gary Cooper's bio on Wikipedia is like, literally miles long. It's the longest bio that I've had to, like, wade through to prepare for this podcast. So uh, I apologize in advance for some rambling because there was a lot to go through. So Gary Cooper was born Frank James Cooper on May 7th, 1901 in Helena, Montana. Both of his parents were English and had uh, emigrated um, separately um, from England to Montana and met in Montana, where they had a 600-acre cattle ranch that they operated up until Gary, well, Frank at the time, was middle school age, um, at which point her his mother took back to um, England to have some uh, English education. So he studied Latin and French and English history at an English grammar school, and he learned some good graces, but, like, never felt, like, comfortable in them, of course. Um, and they ended up, his family moved back to Montana in 1912, so when he was 11, so they spent a couple of years in England. A couple of years after they came back, he was involved in a car accident, (laughs) for which the doctor recommended he recuperate by going horseback riding a lot, and that, like, put his gait out of like, out of step a little bit, like, literally, and made him, (laughs) made it look like he was always a little bit off-balanced and had sort of an angled, like, riding style. So 
whatever. <laughs> yeah, and he it, did, like, walking around. I was like, is it just because he's older? Is he doing this for the role? But he, he was, his walk was, like, funny. Like, he looked like he was leaning to one side. Yeah. And it's because of this car Well, it was because his doctor, when he was 15, told him that he should, his physical therapy should be horseback riding. So he, after two years of attending high school, he stopped and went to work on the ranch full-time as a cowboy. He sort of was in and out of school. Um, he took some art classes when he was still in high school and loved that, and then went on to enroll in Grinnell College in Iowa, where he continued to study art. And he was he apparently was a good student, but then dropped out to go, you know, just to go back to the ranch. In his summers, he worked at Yellowstone National Park as a tour guide, and Grinnell's Drama Club did not accept him into the club, so he was... But they're regretting that today. That's right. He worked for a while in Chicago, and then he went back to Helena, and then his parents moved from Montana to Los Angeles for some family connections that needed to be taken care of. And so he joined his parents there in the autumn of 1924, and he had a series of, like, crappy jobs that he didn't really like, and then he met a couple of people, met up with some friends from Montana who were working as film extras and stunt writers and, like, low-budget silent films. And so they, like, got him to come along, and he was interested in that because he wanted to earn some money for some professional art courses, Because he had such experience in horseback riding, he got a lot of steady work, but he also thought the stunt work was not very good for the horses or for the riders. He just didn't like how tough it was. He also knew at that time that there were other actors using the name Frank Cooper. So his first casting director slash agent, Nan Collins, suggested that he change his name to Gary after her hometown of Gary, Indiana. So he started going by the name uh, Gary Cooper at that point. And he started working in a lot of Western films and non-Western films. He signed a contract with with Goldwyn Productions and worked really steadily through the 1920s. He became a major movie star in 1929 with the release of his very first talking picture, The Virginian, which was also one of the first sound films that really defined this a Western code of honor and helped establish like basically everything we end up like recognizing as a Western movie, like our present in the movie, The Virginian. Um, and he made the transition pretty seamlessly from... Um, silent to talking films and everyone loved his voice which is we know from watching singing in the rain is like a key thing so he acted a lot in the 1930s he just was in a lot of movies he just seemed to be very very prolific in the 1930s and the 1940s he changed his name legally to gary cooper in august 1933 um, and then a couple of years later in 1936 he had the important role in Frank Capra's screwball comedy, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, basically kismet, where Capra, like, capitalized on Cooper's existing reputation to create a, like, quintessential American hero. And so that just, like, if he wasn't already cemented in the American consciousness, he was, like, you know, it was all Gary Cooper all the time. Around that time, Paramount, Paramount tried to, like, create a new contract for him, 
at the same time, Samuel Goldwyn, uh, like, created a new contract. There was a lawsuit, and ultimately the legal system agreed that he could actually have both contracts at the same time. So, like I said, he continued to work through the 1930s, and then in the 1940s, they were sort of his prime years as an actor. He just, like, he appeared in a lot of movies in a very short time. He didn't serve in the military during World War II. He was slightly too old and slightly too unhealthy, but he participated in the war effort by entertaining troops in across the U.S. and in the South Pacific. After the war, he, because the American society was changing, people were not that interested in um, Westerns before, so he just had lots of different roles that were new for him. And he went on to um, found his own production company, which he later sold, to Universal Studios and then signed a contract with Warner Brothers. So he was just bouncing. He, like, worked for everybody. His contract with Warner Brothers was the last contract that he had. Um, And he had got paid to, got paid at least a million dollars per picture in today's dollars. And he had script approval and director approval. He just was, you know, living the good life. So that was, like, up until the time that he made High Noon, which was his sort of most important film in the post-war years. He was uh, in pretty bad health during the filming of High Noon, so there were a lot of scenes, according to a film historian, where he looks like he's like conveying self-doubt, and really he just has stomach ulcers and he's in a lot of pain. <laughs> so <laughs> he's, He um, was just sick. So yeah, so that was sort of a difficult film for him. So I, I mentioned that he had a lot of affairs with a lot of his co, co-stars. He did get, marry a woman named Veronica Ball. They were married and they had a child together. They were very outdoorsy and adventurous together. Because of his affairs, they were legally separated for a period of time. And then they ultimately reconciled. Um, in the late 1950s, he got sick. Um, and he, his wife didn't tell him, like, the full extent to how, of how sick he was right away. They didn't, he, she didn't really want him to know that he was dying. So then in the spring of 1961, he watched the Academy Award ceremony on television, and he was really good friends with James Stewart, so, and so Jimmy Stewart accepted an honorary award on behalf of Gary Cooper, which was Cooper's third Oscar, and so instead of giving an acceptance speech, Stuart, like, looked at the camera and said, Coop, I want you to know I'll get this to you right away. With it goes all the friendship and affection and admiration and deep respect of all of us. We're very, very proud of you, Coop. The next day, the newspapers announced that Gary Cooper was dying. He got messages from all over the world. And then he passed away just uh, less than a month later on May 13th, 1961, just six days after his 60th birthday. So did did you say that was 1951? 1961. Okay, so he lived for a little bit after this movie. Yeah, less than a decade. That's still young, though. It's so young. (laughs) I have to say that watching this, I haven't really watched a lot of Gary Cooper movies, and one of my friends was like, oh, he's so dreamy. And I don't know why, but for the life of me, like, I just, I don't see it. Like, Oh, really? Because I, 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 I don't think he's attractive at all. <laughs> that's funny, because I spent the entire movie, every time, like, he came in, in the shot, I was like, oh, he's so cute. He's just so cute. 
Like, I think he Apparently, I think that the response to stomach ulcers is adorable. I don't yeah, know. You're, you're like, look at that contorted pain on his face. <laughs> no. like, adorable. He's in so much pain. <laughs> I bioed Katie Urado. I'm going to butcher a lot of names in this bio because I speak no Spanish at all and no romance <laughs> languages. So, <laughs> just <laughs> bear with me. Katie Urado was born Maria Cristina Urado Garcia to an affluent, well-connected family in Guadalajara, Mexico on January 16th, 1924. And uh, as a teenager, she was approached by several directors who wanted to cast her in their films, but her parents would not give their consent. So she married young to an aspiring actor, Victor Velasquez, partially so that she could start her film career. In 1943, uh, she appeared in her first Mexican film during the golden age of Mexican cinema. And she was primarily cast as femme fatales, which is also what you see in this movie. And she appeared in almost 20 Mexican films over the next few years. Uh, And in addition to acting to support herself and her family, she worked as a movie columnist, a radio reporter, and a bullfight critic. What? (laughs) So she was uh, a woman of many trades. And in 1951, she was quote-unquote discovered at a bullfight in Mexico by the American filmmaker Bud Bodecker. And that's when she began her Hollywood career in the film The Bullfighter and the Lady. And Urado only had rudimentary English skills, and so she memorized her lines for that film phonetically, which I thought was amazing. Oh, my God. And um, her performance was so strong anyway that that's how she got cast in this movie, High Noon, because the producer Stanley Kramer saw her and thought she was amazing. So in 1952, she appeared in, and she learned to speak English for that role. And she studied and took classes several hours a day for two months to learn it so that she could speak English well enough for that. And, oh, this was a piece of trivia, but I didn't include it earlier. Gary Cooper's character was supposed to have a different last name in the movie, but she couldn't pronounce it. Oh my god. So they changed the name to Kane because of because she could say it. So she continued acting in Hollywood Westerns, appearing in Arrowhead in nineteen fifty three, Broken Lance in nineteen fifty four, One Eyed Jacks in nineteen sixty one, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in nineteen seventy three. And she was the first Latin American actress nominated for an Academy Award as Best Supporting Actress in Broken Lance, and she was the first to win a Golden Globe for her performance in High Noon. Um, And throughout the rest of her career, she continued acting in both Hollywood and Mexico. Wow. Yeah, so she really did, she she had a dual language career, and she moved back to Mexico later in her life. And towards the ends of her life, she had heart and lung ailments, and she died of kidney failure and pulmonary disease. On July 5th, 2002, at the age of 78. 2002? I know. Not that long ago. Yeah, 40 Um, years after uh, Gary Cooper died. She also had a lot of affairs with famous actors. Sure. um, If anyone's interested in looking into that in more detail. And uh, among them, Marlon Brando. I did think she was very sexy, and I really liked her deep voice, too, Mm -hmm. in this movie. And she did seem like a very strong person. Yeah. It was an interesting character. Yeah. So should we get into it? Yes. 
So remind me, have you had you seen this movie before? I had not, at least not to my memory. I saw it many years ago, so I had like a vague uh, recollection of what the uh, plot was, but I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I forgot until you know the first couple of shots of the clock that you know that it's set in. It takes place over the course of a hundred, an hour and twenty-four minutes, and the movie is one hundred and twenty or an hour, an hour and twenty-four minutes long. Which I just like. There's a part of me that like loves that conceit. Like it's such a yeah. It's the book movie is based on a short story, and it's such a like good short story conceit. I thought so. You know, I'm on the record as not really liking westerns. <laughs> I was not that excited to watch this movie. I have to tell you that I loved it. <laughs> I loved this movie I'm from so a writer glad. perspective. It, <laughs> oh I God. just thought it, it was such a well-written movie. Mm-hmm. It, it was so tightly written. There was so much tension built up throughout. Yeah. It had like a clear moral message. It didn't go where I thought it was going to go. Where did you think it was going to go? Well, I I, was I love thinking about that. Up until the end that people were going to show up for him. Like if yeah. this was a typical western, that's what would have happened. Everyone would have been like, "No, we're not helping you." And then at the very end, like there were a couple scenes like later on towards the shootout when people were all just tensely staring at the clock and I was like, "Oh, all of these people are then going to show up." Yeah. and back him up. Nope. But that well, didn't happen. And like yeah. the whole thing is just about like complete lack of community and people abandoning you despite everything you've done. For them. Right. That they're like, and they like make excuses and they say like, Oh, well, I don't actually have a, like a horse in this fight, even though the horse in this fight is their community. Like that he's fought so hard to, you know, protect for however many years he's been there. Yeah. I mean, the only one who shows up for him is Amy. Yeah. Like talk about a writing thing. Yeah. I'm sure you know about Flannery O'Connor's, like, like rule about what a good ending to a story should be, which is that it needs to be both surprising and inevitable. Like, you can't see it coming, but, like, when it does come, you're like, oh, right, this is the only ending that could be. And I just think that fits so perfectly with this movie because, you know, it's set up as her, she's, you know, she's become a Quaker because she watched both her father and her brother be killed by gun violence. And then here she's, and she's spent the whole movie saying to, because of that, saying to her husband, like, I don't believe in this. Like, I'm a Quaker. I don't believe in gun violence. You know, and then ultimately she she's the one who shoots Frank Miller. Or not Frank Miller, the other guy, um, one of Frank Miller's band, in order to protect her husband. Like, she's the one that ultimately is the deputy that shows up to protect him. Yeah, I was thinking about how that marriage would have continued after that and also, like, what it would have done to her psyche. Yeah. To have been... Because it seemed like one of those cases where she was like, you know, my moral belief is that this is wrong and I won't participate in it. And then when push came to shove, she did what she had to to protect her spouse. Yeah. But, like, she also has to live with herself, too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Live <laughs> with the fact that. that she killed a person. And and shot him in the back. It is such an interesting, like, moral question, and I appreciate that, like, this movie sort of, it doesn't shy away from it because she, like, does it, and then she's, you see the anguish in her face, and then she's kidnapped, basically. <laughs> she, like... You know, and Frank Miller comes and is like, all right, I'm using you as a human shield. So you, it's like makes it even more complex. 
Yeah, and she did seem uh, brave also in that very last scene where she kind of fights him off, and that is what gives the opening mm-hmm. for Kane to kill him. Yeah. Like, if she hadn't done that, that probably would have gone differently. Because of their age difference and because of their, like, differing views and we don't really have any backstory about how they know each other or, like, why they got together, it is easy to be like, oh, why are these, why are they getting married? Why are they a couple? But then you see something like that that is sort of coordinated on a deeper level and you're like, okay, these people probably will make it because (laughs) they're, like, on the same page when when the shooting starts to happen. They literally have each other's back. And then, didn't you love that at the very end, like, right after everyone from the gang is dead and, like, the town starts to pour back out, they just immediately get in the carriage and ride away. Yeah, they're like, screw you people. (laughs) We're not sticking around. This town, and and it seemed like Cain had given, like, a significant portion of his life to trying to defend that town and make it safe. And then when he was endangered, nobody cared. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And even the, like, baby deputy was, like, mad at him because he didn't, like, suggest him for, uh, to replace him. And then you, like, see why exactly he didn't. Because he just didn't have what it took. Yeah. I also liked, I just thought that the momentum was really great in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, it was interesting in every scene. Like, I love that it opened, like, in the middle of the wedding. Because mm-hmm. in a lot of movies, it would be like there would be build up to that, or there would be something, and that was just like, no, this is just the opening, and it's already interesting. Like he's married, and he's taking off his badge. Yeah, that can't be like how this movie goes because it's a western. Yeah, I in when I was looking at the trivia, another thing I saw was that this movie is known as a western for people who don't like westerns. <laughs> Which is maybe another Got reason your why number. I like yeah. it. And it also features another Quaker, which seems That's to right. be like <laughs> it's a Quaker important Western. factor. Yeah. I mean, we've watched two Westerns, each features a Quaker, <laughs> and both of which I liked. I know. So in the order for Emily to like... Not, the what? Treasure of oh. the Sierra Madre did yeah. not have a Quaker, and I did not like that one. Yeah. What we've learned is that the Westerns have to have a Quaker in them for <laughs> For you to appreciate them. Yeah. Although it annoys me sometimes when they use it as a device in films that's like, well, I converted to Quaker because I don't believe in violence. I'm like, that's not why you become a Quaker. Like, that's... That's like... It's not like a thing. Like, it made more sense to me in The Angel and the Bad Man when it was just like her family was Quakers and she grew up that way. Yeah. I don't know. If I Although this. she's, it's probably, she was probably very traumatized to see her, to see her dad and her brother be killed with the gun, so, like. Yeah. I mean, one takeaway for me is, um, I would not have wanted to live in the New Mexico Territory during this time period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, everyone just having those magazines of bullets and, like, walking around with their guns in their holsters, uh, that would totally freak me out. Yeah. Well, it was a different, different context. I mean, it would totally freak me out, too. Uh, What did you think of how, in the very opening, we're sort of seeing things from the perspective of Miller's gang? I kind of like it because we're sort of, like, thrust into a different perspective and then thrust into the one that we expect. So when we get to Kane's point of view, like, we're with him, but we have had a sense of who the other people are. Yeah, I thought... That also intrigued me just because I kind of didn't know 
where it was taking me. And like, I was like, oh, are these the people that I'm supposed to be rooting for? None of them look like Gary Cooper, but... <laughs> so can we talk about the Helen Ramirez character? Did you think she was supposed to be still in love with Kane? I don't think so. I think she's not supposed to be in love with him anymore. But there's, like, an expectation that she is. And it almost seemed like they had, like, a bond, like, based on, like, just having dealt with Frank. I, maybe it just, like, goes back to, like, have, like, shared trauma. That, like, my, my, my sense of the timeline was that she was with Frank Miller. And then Kane, like, put him away. Then then they got together. They, like, broke up a year prior. And then he got together with Amy. So it's been a year and it's been five years since the stuff with Frank Miller, I think. I feel like she's not in love with him anymore, but she still has, like, a bond with him. I think that's fair. I think in the scene where they're both on the train, that they were trying to make it really clear that, basically, if you loved him, you would be getting off the train. And she doesn't get off the train. Right. But Amy does. I thought yeah, that... she's sort of putting her, that life, part of her life behind. Yes. She had, like, a nice little Me Too movement moment mm-hmm. with yes. the deputy. Yeah. Where she's she, like, like get your hands up me. Yeah, she's like, you only kiss me if I want you to kiss me. Yeah. And that's it. Yep. Um, I was rooting liked... for her. I don't know if we were supposed to root for her, but I was rooting for her. I was, too. I mean, she seemed like she had a lot of power. Yeah. She owned the saloon. Yep. She seemed like she more or less had, like, whichever man she wanted in the town. Yeah. And, like, that guy, whatever his name was, was, like, at her beck and call, where she was just like, go get this thing. Like, go get this other thing. Go get this guy. Yeah. Yeah. She's a badass. She's a badass. (laughs) Totally a badass. And she got, like, good money when she left town, too. Yeah. I wondered, like, what her backstory was. Yeah. In a, in a, like, the very best way, where I was like, you are a character that's fascinating, and I want to know more about, like, how you got to this town. Yeah, like, and how did you get to be this powerful business person in the town? Yeah. What did you think of the actual, like, shootout scene? I loved the, the mechanics of it, I guess, where the gang is supposed to come into town, and he's, and Kane isn't really sure what's happening or who's going to be where, and then one of the the gang is just, like, too impatient, and he just, like, breaks a window to get a hat that he wants to get for someone, I guess. And, like, that warns Kane that they're on the corner, so then he's like, oh, I know where they are now. And, like, it seems so unbelievable that he would take on four men, like, be able to take on four men. But I liked that they sort of used the whole town in order to, like, make it possible for him to, like, hide. Yeah, I mean, it, I thought it was drawn out in a really interesting way like even though it seems far-fetched that he would be the one who walked away from that the way that they played it out seemed believable i was very upset in the scene where they set the barn on fire and then i was like what is gonna happen to these horses he lets the horses go yes and that is when i was like kane i like you i know i know i literally wrote in my notes he's a good man because he lets the horses go he doesn't just let one horse go so he can escape he takes the time when people are trying to like he's literally being hunted down to be killed yeah (laughs) and he's like no i'm gonna save all the horses all of them i love he was a good horseback rider too well it's because he had all that physical therapy when he was 15 from his car accident so He doesn't know come, how to ride The doctor it wasn't wrong. It came in handy. Like, <laughs> I know. Like, I felt like this movie has resonance for this time. Mm-hmm. 
because of the way that there's such a lack of community now and it's just all hyper individualism mm -hmm. like well, i could see something like this happening maybe more like with gang culture or something like that yeah i mean i think like you know the justice is like the justice of the peace is like packing up his stuff to get out of town and Kane is like, well, why are you leaving? And the Justice of the Peace is like, he literally says, I, I don't have, there's no time for a lesson in civics. And he goes on to say, like, I'm leaving because, like, there will be other towns and I'm saving my own life, basically. And you gotta save your own life, too. There are so many other lines like that in this movie that are, like, on the surface seem like these people are like, oh, yeah, I'm civic, civic-minded, but, like, you know, in the end, they're more self-centered than that. Like, when they're in the church and the mayor is, like, talking about how, what a great thing that the marshal has done for the town. And he's, you know, he's saying, like, this this problem with Frank Miller is our problem because it's happening in our town. And we have to, like, have courage to do what's right no matter how hard it is. And it sounds like he's, like, gearing people up to go, like, de be deputized and stand with... Kane, and then he's like, because of all these reasons, Kane, you gotta leave town. Like, get out while you can. And <laughs> because Frank Miller's not gonna, like, do anything bad to us, he's just coming to you. And if you're here, it's gonna ruin the town. Yeah, I feel like it's such a, it's such a 2019 <laughs> sentiment. Yeah, it was really depressing. I thought that church scene was the most depressing, mm -hmm. because... You would think, at, like, you're in this space where a lot of the focus is supposed to be on morality, mm -hmm. <laughs> and not a single person stands up with him. Yeah. The minister is like, well, when he's asked his, his opinion, he's he just is, he says, well, you're not supposed to kill anybody, so I'm staying out of this. It's like, have a point of view, dude. Yeah, what an anemic minister. I <laughs> know. Oh, beautiful girl, what a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl, let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Do you want to talk about fashion? I do, primarily because I, <laughs> so every time Gary Cooper came on stage and like we saw, or on screen and we saw his face, I was like, oh, he's so cute, but then like, every time we had, like, a shot from the back of the outlaws at the train station waiting for Frank Miller's train to come in, I just was like, oh my god, their pants are so adorable. Their little butts and their little pants are so... <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, because they were wearing, like, cowboy ride... You know, like, horse riding pants that were comfortable on a horse. Yeah. I mean, this isn't technically costumes, but... I read that they deliberately did not use much makeup on Gary Cooper because they wanted, like, the lines of his face to be more pronounced. They wanted it to be yeah. obvious that he had ulcers? Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> the The only thing that really stuck out to me with costumes was how they did that uh, annoying thing that they do with women in movies where you either have to be, like, the virgin or the whore. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they dressed Helen in all black and Amy in all white. And they, like, juxtaposed them a ton to yeah. be like, see, here is the blonde, white, pure woman. And here right. is the fallen, you know, woman in black. And, of course, it's a woman of color, too. Right. So, like, 
Yeah, so that and, annoyed me. Yeah, that was the main thing that I noticed about costumes in this movie, too. That they were just, like, all in for <laughs> white versus black. Good versus evil. Yeah. Um, also, technically, not costumes, but I thought that Helen's eyebrows were amazing. Yes. <laughs> I was very distracted by them. Yeah. I think they deserve, like, a whole podcast episode of their own. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Did you think that there was a social justice message in this movie? Yes, I did. That whole, like, moral message throughout, I think, really spoke to the, like, uh, well, we've talked about this, so it's sort of a timeless message that's still timely and relevant now. Yeah. I wonder what contemporary audiences thought when they saw this. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, and if it, they like connected that it was an allegory, pro- maybe they did, or maybe they just maybe they they probably didn't call it an allegory. They were like, "Oh, this is really relevant to what we're talking about with the communists." It, it seems very um, in opposition to just typical American values of movies, which is like, you know, people come through for you in the end. You can rely on the town, and like, yeah. you know, authority figures can be good and help you out. Like I was thinking about mm-hmm. the Blob, which was oh, yeah. kind of around the similar time period and how like the policemen are the people who and that was also you said like an allegory for communism some people said mm-hmm. but like the police officers were like helping everyone and like they mm-hmm. believed them when they said like there were there was a weird alien thing <laughs> and I was yeah. like this is uh, very different from yeah. this movie yeah and it helps that like it's a majority white town and whatever I mean, it, uh, Helen Ramirez also has this, like, line that she ref- she says, referring to, like, how hard she's had and how hard her life has been. And she says, um, you know, she refers to the fact that she's a Mexican woman in a town like this, that, like, that's hard. <laughs> and Yeah. Yeah, so she probably, like, aside from her uh, affair with Kane, she probably has a very different, um, you know, perspective on, on him and his law and order and what that represents than, you know the mayor or you know the people in the church yeah i was i was thinking too like there's sort of like a flip side in this of like the thanklessness of doing a public service type of job Mm -hmm. law enforcement and like you know risking your life all the time but then knowing that people don't necessarily have your back as well and we don't really talk about that side Mm -hmm. of it as much on the podcast but yeah there was a fire on my street tonight oh like a like a bad one at um, a couple houses up. Seeing all the firemen come like immediately. A lot of them were volunteers and just like rushing in like that. I was like, wow, this yeah, like this is really the kind of job where like literally every day you might not go home. Yeah, and then like no, then and they send around like envelopes for like oh donate to the volunteer firemen. Like nobody does. Yeah, nobody does. Yeah, and they don't even if they are paid, they aren't paid very well. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I'm just thinking about that side of things. You know, for a while, for most of the movie, he does have, Kane has one person who he, like, can deputize, and his name is Herb. And when Herb finds out that no one else has volunteered, he's like, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go home. And he literally says, I just live here. I got no stake in this fight. Why are those things opposed to each other? Why isn't it, I live here, so I have a stake in this fight? Like, (laughs) like, what... 
What's behind that? Uh, yeah, and I thought the worst part about that was like he made some comments like, "Let the record show that I made a good faith effort to back you up." Like, right. I was here, so like that should count for something. But I'm not actually going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's almost worse. <laughs> yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Did you think this movie passed the Bechdel test? I was thinking about it because they do talk. I feel like Helen and Amy do talk about Kane, but it's not in a, it's not just a like, oh, is one of us going to marry him? Because obviously one of them already has married him. It's more about like, it seems like they're talking about him, but they're actually talking about like the moral and ethical questions that he represents. They're not talking about him. It's more about like the bigger picture. So it seems like it passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, I was not sure for this one because it, they do have like very fully developed conversations with nuance that are about real things. Mm-hmm. But it is all through the lens of Kane. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I mean, my inclination was to say it doesn't pass, but I could see why you would say that it does. It yeah. doesn't feel like it's like a thoroughly anti-feminist movie. Mm-hmm. Like we said, Helen has she's a woman of power in this town, and Amy is sort of sort of equally stuck in this. Like, oh well, I'm a Quaker, but my husband is like deciding to do this thing, and so do I support my religion or do I support my husband? And like she ultimately picks her husband, but not. It seems like not because she like doesn't have a will of her own, but because she's like this is like this is my actual priority. And I just think that when they talk about Kane, they're not talking about him and uh, him specifically. It's like here's this whole situation, and Kane could be a yeah. woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely both demonstrate intelligence and agency mm-hmm. in the movie. It's not like some like silly high society like, caper or something. It's like right real people facing moral issues and grappling with ethics and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So totally, um, I liked that they had a lot of scenes together where they were actually talking. Yeah, there were good scenes, just like general. There were good scenes in this movie. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, if I were going to teach a film class, or I would even teach this in, like, just a writing class to be like, oh, like, this is how, Mm -hmm. this is how you, like, tightly write a scene (laughs) and, like, show this. This is how you do it. Well, what would you rate it? I think I would give it a four and a half. Yeah, I think a four and a half. What would you give it? Uh, I actually would give it the same, a four and a half. Yes, we agreed on something. (laughs) We agree. I mean, I can't give it the five of All About Eve because reasons, but I really thought this was a good movie and I'm going to think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful, like beautifully shot. Mm -hmm. Um, The score was great. The acting was great. Wonderfully written. Like it just Mm -hmm. was an A plus movie that... I would recommend that other people watch. Yeah. I agree on all of those points. So, and I think you are the one who suggested watching this, and I'm glad that you did, because I was like, oh, Western, I don't know, <laughs> Gary Cooper, who cares? And then, like, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> yes, I have converted you to Quaker Westerns. <laughs> I know. I mean, this very specific subgenre of Westerns. <laughs> So, what's our next movie, Hill? 
Our next movie is one that you suggested. It happened one night. Yes. It's moving in a very different direction. Yep. But will also be fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.